Turn your Bibles, please, church, to Luke chapter 15. We are, uh, today we get to reflect on one of the greatest texts in the Bible, in my opinion. The story of the prodigal son. And I'm telling you, you know, probably as you, as you turn in your Bibles there in, in Luke 15, I know we're, if you've grown up in the church, you're familiar with this story. I mean, you, you know what happens. I mean, even if you didn't grow up in the church, you, you probably are familiar with the story. You've probably heard at least of the term, the prodigal son. This is one of those types of stories that, 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 that transcends pop culture even. Much has been written, much has been um, filmed, much as many paintings have been painted and songs have been written about prodigal sons. And I'm probably not going to share anything with you this morning that, that you didn't already know. And that's okay. Because I, I know when life is the hardest and my heart is the most dull and my affections for Christ are fleeting, and newsflash, that happens to me quite often. I'm sure it does for you. It's not new information that I need. It's, it's my heart need, needing to be recalibrated back to, to the core truths of the gospel constantly. And so this morning, my prayer for us is that we gaze upon this text that they would, we would just see the beauty of the mercy of God. Just his, his grace and his love for sinners such as you and such as me. A few weeks ago, uh, Kaylee and I, we, were, we, we took Briley for an interview at, uh, at the King's Academy where uh, we're planning on sending Briley to school in the fall. And, uh, and many of you know, many of you, many of your kids go to the King's Academy and it's a, it's a Christian hybrid homeschool type, uh, school. And when we were interviewing there, she asked us one of the first questions she asked, she asked, uh, for us to share our testimony. And, um, you know, Kaylee, Kaylee shared hers and then I, and I shared mine and I, and I remember sitting there just thinking my my testimony just isn't that impressive. I mean, I was saved um, in, in fifth grade at Roswell Street Baptist Church, about 15 minutes from here, at Bible school. And uh, the Lord saved me from probably what, what would have been at that time, probably being disrespectful to my mom, being prideful, things of that nature. I didn't have like this crazy life of, just wild oats and sin that, that many have had and, and bringing into this life of just radical difference at that time in my life. And certainly by God's grace, uh, the Lord has greatly changed me and I've seen his presence in, in my life and, and he sanctified me and made me more like Christ. He has radically changed me, but the story that I share just doesn't feel that, that impressive. And someone doesn't usually say, Brian, could you, could you come share that testimony somewhere else? I think about like 
a few weeks ago, I, I, we had the CVC dinner and, and I got to hear Matt's testimony. And I'm like, man, that's, that's a testimony. And if you've never heard Matt's testimony, go ask him. It's a great testimony. But, but, but it's not just Matt. I've heard, I've heard Jen's testimony, what the Lord saved her from. We've heard Rob's testimony, what the Lord saved him from. I've heard Bill's testimony. And I could go on even in, in, in this room of, of just like the Lord taking such, su- such people who are walking just so passionately against the Lord and drawing him to himself by his sovereign grace and just changing them. And it's encouraging. And it shows the, 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 the power of Christ and the love of Christ and his grace and his, and his mercy to save sinners. Even the most vile sinners, such as you and such as me. And when we turn to Luke chapter 15, I was just looking at this this week. And I was thinking, you know what? As I I read the story of the prodigal son, this really is a picture of sorts of all of our testimony. All of us, if you know Christ, walked as enemies according to God. And all of us, he drew in. All of us, he convicted our hearts of our sin. All of us saw the goodness of Jesus. All of us repented and put our whole hope and trust in Christ alone for salvation. And all of us who repented and trusted in Christ, he gave grace and mercy. And he saved us. And he changed us. And that is a story of the prodigal son this morning. Now, that is not the end of the sermon, (laughs) but that is where we were headed. My main point this morning is this. I believe this is the point of the prodigal son, is that God's loving kindness is bestowed upon every repentant sinner. God's loving kindness is bestowed upon every repentant sinner. Amen. Please follow along this morning, church, as I read uh, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have much more than enough bread But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and, and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for my son was dead and is alive again. He is lost and now he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. And you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. May God bless the reading of his word. Point one this morning. Point one. Sin is a result of a complete disregard for God. Sin is a result of a complete disregard for God. You'll remember, as Matt preached last week, he, he pointed to the fact that at the, begin, at the beginning of chapter 15, there was, this, there was this verse here that would kind of set the stage for these three stories. It was, it was this, in the, chapter 15, verse 2, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of that time, those who uh, most Israelites would look at as the standard of righteousness and goodness and holiness and, and, and all that is great in Israel, they, they looked upon Jesus and they, they saw this man who had mercy for sinners, who loved people, who pursued sinners, who rejoiced at, at their repentance and coming to faith in Christ and who celebrated such things and associated with such people, they looked at Christ, and there was nothing that made them more angry than that fact. That Christ would associate with these people. The sinners, the wretches, the heathens, the worst of the worst. And so as Jesus, he pursues such people, who in their flesh wanted nothing to do with him, As he pursued such people, the Pharisees would grumble because they thought they were holy and good and right with God. And these people didn't deserve the grace of God. So they grumble. And Jesus tells them three stories. 
Matt preached about these first two stories last week. The parable of the lost sheep. Jesus tells them a story where you got 99 sheep and then one sheep goes astray and the shepherd, he finds the sheep and he celebrates. He celebrates what? He, 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 here's the point. In Luke 15, 7, Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who what? Repents. Than over 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. Then Jesus tells the story of the parable of the lost coin. A woman who has ten silver coins, she loses one, and she, she turns her whole house over looking for this one coin, and then she finds it, and, and she celebrates, and all to tell what? Luke 15.10, Just so I tell you, Pharisees, there was joy before the angels of God over one sinner who what? Who repents. And then this brings us to the story of the prodigal son. In the first two stories, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of, of the lost coin, Jesus gives us a picture for the heart of God. The heart of God that rejoices at sinners who repent. No matter how ugly things got, no matter how far they strayed away from God, no matter how rebellious they were, when they repent, Christ celebrates. Heaven celebrates. And Jesus goes into greater detail here in the parable of the prodigal son. He gives a, a, a more uh, specific picture, a deeper, more detailed story of what it would look like for someone to stray from God and the mercy that they receive. And so as Jesus is, is telling the story, he starts off by, by, by presenting a man and his two sons, a father and two sons, a younger, uh, an older son and, and a younger son. And, and the first one to speak in this, in this story here is the younger son. The younger son, he comes to his father and he says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Yeah, you know, not understanding maybe the full context of what's happening here, the, the cultural context of what's happening here. We might kind of gloss over the significance of this story, but I, I'm telling you, I'm going to spend a little bit of time here on this because, because it's super significant to the rest of the story. There's a few things to consider as we approach this parable. And we find this younger son who's asking the father to give him this share of property that is coming to him. First thing is, is to consider is this. The law called for sons and daughters to honor their father and mother. We know that from the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother. And the reality is, this, this act of, the, of this younger son approaching his father and asking for this inheritance to give him what is due him was extremely dishonoring to his father. There's really not a modern equivalent of how dishonoring this would have been for us to put this in perspective. Because we don't understand the significance of what this younger son was actually asking. 
And it would help for us perhaps to understand just a bit about how inheritance worked in ancient Israel. Inheritances were were customarily given through wills when the father died. That's when they would receive the inheritance. We're like, okay, that sounds very similar to how inheritance happened today. Well, in rare cases, sometimes the father would divide the inheritance before his death. In rare cases, this would happen. He would he would kind of divide out. Here's who's getting what. Here's who's getting this. Sometimes maybe you know if, if your parents are getting older, they have a family meeting and they kind of all come together and say, "Hey, when I die, here's how here's how things are going to look, so you're not surprised, so you're not fighting over it when I die." In those times when the father would divide up his inheritance before the death, he would still retain ownership of the property until he died. Okay? Think of it like a, a trust fund of sorts. What would have happened if he would have, if he would have died? This is a trust fund. You can't really access this until I died, but it is yours. It is, it is as good as yours. However, in such cases where the father would divide up assets, where he would divide up the inheritance before his death, in most cases, the son would not be able to liquidate the assets. He would not actually have full control of the assets. He would have assets that he could steward. He would have assets that he could manage, but those assets were not actually his property. You following me? That was the... The normal scenarios under which if the inheritance was given before the father died, that it would look like. The sons could steward them, they could manage them, but they did not have the full rights to them. But what the younger son is coming to his father and asking is the full rights to the property. I want it now. Give it to me in its full glory right now. Give me the possessions right now. I want it. Which is basically like asking for his father to die. I'm cutting off the relationship. I'm done. I don't so much care for you. No regard for you. No affection for you. No honor for you. I want your stuff. To request such a haughty request was, was, again, like asking your father to die, hoping that he would die. The commentator James Edwards notes this. He says, the younger son's request shames both his father and his family. It is a certified public statement that he no longer wishes to live within or be identified by the family. And requesting what should become available only at his father's death, the son is, in effect, writing his father's death certificate. In other words, he wants the father's stuff, but he doesn't care about the father. He completely disregards the man that loved him. He completely disregards the man that raised him. He completely disregards the man that provided for him. And he completely disregards the word of God that called him to honor his father and mother. This young man wants what he wants. He wants his stuff. He wants his money. He wants his glory. He wants his pleasure. Why? Because he has no regard for the
the Father. What's interesting, when, when, when we read through the Old Testament, we, we see that, that such a scenario like this was so common in ancient Israel. It was so common. It was a story of Israel time and time and time and time again and how they related to God. In Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 15, the Lord God says this. He's talking about when you enter the land, the land that you didn't, um, the, the land that, that you didn't earn and these wells that you didn't dig, and all of these fields that you didn't plow, when you, when you enter into this land that I am giving you through no effort or earning of your own, be careful. Because all of the goods and all the stuff is going to distract you and you're going to forget me. Be careful. Be careful, friend. Do not be distracted by all of the stuff. Because here is my will for your life, Israelites that you would serve me and fear me only. That is my will for your life. Even in Joshua 24, as, as, as they're about to enter the land, I can imagine that Joshua thinks back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and, and as they're about to enter the land, uh, in Joshua 24, Joshua, he, he, he summons all the Israelites together, and he says this, choose today who you're going to serve as we enter the land. You got two choices. You can, you can serve the gods of this world, the pagan gods, or you can serve the one true God. And he exhorts them more, and, and the Israelites overwhelmingly verbally respond this way. They say, far be it from us. <laughs> far be it from us. We would never do that. We would never serve the gods of this world. Far be it from us. We're going to serve the one true living God. And then Joshua says this. He says, well, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. So go and serve him. But then in verse 23 of Joshua 24, he says this, since you have chosen to follow the Lord and to trust the Lord and to obey God, he says this, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. Incline your heart. Put away foreign gods and incline your heart to God. In other words, what he's telling the Israelites is this, repent and believe. It's God's will. Repent and believe. But it's not far before we get to the book of Judges, where what happens over and over and over and over and over and over. The Israelites forget the Lord God because they have no regard for him. They have no regard for his word. They have no affection for God. They like this stuff. They don't love the Lord. And therefore, what happens? They do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. They do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And such actions certainly describe the sinners and tax collectors of that day. Most of these vile sinners and these, these tax collectors, they, they, they were a part of Israel. Like they were living with the people. But all they cared about was debauchery and money. No, no regard for the law. No regard for the Lord. No regard for his mercy. No regard for his common grace. They just wanted stuff. Because they didn't care about God. 
If we're honest, that often defines who sits in the pews of church gatherings today. If we're honest, they want heaven. That's what they want. They want heaven. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want a lake of fire. That's all I want. I don't want the judgment of God. They want wealth. They want health. They want happiness. You know, they, they, they join a church maybe because they want a few friends. However, they don't want Christ. They don't want Christ. They don't actually treasure Jesus. They don't love him. There's no desire in their hearts to actually obey him. And it's evident because their life is not characterized at all by, by, by turning to the scriptures to see Christ and to treasure him and to know him better. To be around God's people. I mean, these are just characteristics. There was no desire for their friends or their family, their neighbors, their workplaces, or their cities to know Christ. But they want heaven. They want heaven. Friends, that isn't a believer. It's not a believer. Simply wanting to go to heaven is not a believer. I mean, have we read the gospel so far of Luke? Has it, has it penetrated our hearts and changed our understanding of really what it means to be a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ? It's not simply someone that wants to go to heaven. It's not. It's someone that wants the Lord with all of their heart, all of their soul, all their mind, all their strength. It's a believer. Affection for the Lord. Real affection. Real desire. Real pursuit of the Lord God. Nothing less. However, if we're also honest friends, church, family, I know that doesn't describe all of us in this room or most of us in this room. However, there are times in, in, in our hearts as believers, there are times that our hearts are dull with love and affection for Christ. I'm just telling you right now, I have been going through that season. I've told some of you guys about it. I've been going through it hard lately. I'm just like struggling, struggling to love the Lord. Struggling to find joy, struggling to find happiness. Lots of depression, lots of anxiety. I'm sure I'm not the only one in here. Like the Christian walk is hard. It is really, really hard. Christ provides grace, but dear friends, it is difficult at times. And Dave Wolf, he called me this past week. And he, he noticed that I wasn't, I wasn't doing well. And he, he calls me and we talked for about an hour. But one of the things that he, he asked me that, that stuck out, you know, because I was like, you know, I don't feel like I have any hidden unrepentant sin that I need to deal with here. Like I'm just struggling with my love for Jesus. I said, I've never studied the Bible more. Like I'm studying, I'm studying. I'm preparing for sermons, preparing for this ecclesiology study on Saturday mornings. Like studying, reading the Bible a lot. I don't say that as a bragging point. I'm saying I'm reading the Bible, but my love for Christ isn't growing. 
And Dave said this, he said, are you studying the word to truly see and treasure Christ? Or are you simply studying for intellectual gain? I can go through all the religious stuff like I want, but the reality is if my heart isn't de uh, desiring to see and treasure Christ, it's sinful. See that? that all sin is a result of just a complete disregard and lack of love for God. That's all sin is. And God is gracious. He's so gracious to reveal such realities to us. Do you see that, friend? That God is so gracious to bring our sin into the light. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is gracious to bring your sin to light? He is. Friends, if, you're, if today your love for the Lord is dim, let me invite you to do something. Pray and confess that to him. Conf God can handle it. God's a big boy. God's got thick skin. <laughs> He's ready to meet you with love and compassion. Pray that the Lord, that the Holy Spirit would increase your affections for Christ. This is a prayer I promise you that the Holy Spirit always, every time, will answer in the affirmative. Is your heart dull for Christ this morning, teenager? Older person, middle-aged. Pray that the Holy Spirit would increase your affection for Christ. If you're like me, that is a prayer that I need to pray daily. Daily. If you're looking to pray for me this week, friends, pray that. That the Lord would increase my affections for Christ. And as Jesus is giving this story here, even though we're early on in the story. We must ask ourselves, because Jesus, remember, is speaking to these Pharisees here. What's going on in their minds? What are the Pharisees thinking? As, he, as they hear the story about this young man who has asked for the inheritance from his father before he dies, what are they thinking? I can tell you exactly what they're thinking since they are experts in the law, they probably thought, this kid is an absolute wretch. After such an embarrassing act of disobedience, surely this father brought the son out to the gates of the city and had this little demon stoned like he deserved. Does that sound too intense, friends? That the Pharisees might suggest for a moment that this 17-year-old son deserved to be dragged out to the city gates and have the elders of the city take large stones and bash the kid's brains in because of his sin. Sounds intense, doesn't it? It is intense. But this is exactly what the law called for in Exodus 21.17. Children who reviled or hated their parents were to be put to death. Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21 calls for stubborn and rebellious sons who did not obey their parents to ultimately be brought to the gate of their city. The city gates is where often where, where judgment occurred. And this is where the elders would ultimately be called to stone the disobedient and rebellious son. That was God's will. That was God's holy law. It goes to say that dishonoring your parents was a very, very serious 
Serious offense to God. That was God's will, friends. And it is God. Little young children today, teenagers today, listen up. God's will for your life is to honor your mom and dad. This is the word of the Lord. That is what the law called this father to do. That's what the Pharisees would have done. But what does the father do? Well, the text tells us that the father did not bring his son to the city gate for judgment. Instead, this gracious father divided up his property. He divided it up right there. But notice that he doesn't just give the younger brother his portion. What's the text say? He divided it up among who? Them. He divided the inheritance up among them. And Deuteronomy 21.17, it gives provisions for how these inheritance these inheritances would have been divided. It called for the, the younger, for the older son to receive a double portion of the inheritance and the, and the uh, younger son to receive a smaller inheritance. It would have looked like this. That of the inheritance, the older, the older son would have received two-thirds of the inheritance. And the younger son would have received roughly a third of the inheritance. And so it could be said that because of this younger son's complete disregard and love for his father, he would completely take it and leave for his little menial one-third of his inheritance. I'm willing to throw it all away, the relationship, everything, for my little chunk of inheritance, my little one-third. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm done. Don't care about the father at all. Just give me my stuff. This is how sin starts. It doesn't start with just desiring money and fame and fortune. It begins with a lack of honor, love, and regard for the Lord. Started that way in the garden. Did God really say? Translated, I don't care what God says. I will eat. James says that our sin is a result of our heart's posture. And when we sin, our heart's posture is nothing more than a disregard for God. Sin is a result of a complete disregard for God. Next, we must see how ugly it is to walk in sin. We must see that its consequences are devastating. Point two, the consequences of sin are devastating. So the son, he, it says in verse 13, after he receives an inheritance, he, he uh, gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country and squandered his property in reckless living. J.C. Ryle says this when con considering the consequences of sin. He says this, sin is a hard master and the servants of sin always discover this sooner or later to their cost. Let's look at a few consequences of, of this man's sin, this young, this young son. Let's look at some consequences of his sin. First, sin results in broken relationships. Sin results in broken relationships. You see, it didn't take long for the, for the son to, after he received his inheritance, it didn't take long to, to pack up his stuff and leave altogether. In fact, in, in the, English, uh, the English Standard Version, the ESV that I have, it says that he gathered all he had 
But uh, the English of gathering all he had doesn't quite do justice to what the son actually did. He basically took all that the father gave him and liquidated it right there on the spot. He sold it all. He cashed out. And he left. He was done. Remember, in such a scenario, the son likely didn't even have the full right to own the property outright yet. But in his foolishness, he didn't care. He didn't care about the relationship. And such an act would have been absolutely detrimental to the family's estate. This this act of just liquidating it and running off with the money would have absolutely killed the family. This was, the, this was the father's livelihood. This was, this was the, 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 the servants and the, even the older brother. This would have been all of their livelihood. This would have absolutely destroyed them. But the younger brother didn't care. He didn't care about the relationships. He only cared about his own glory and his own sin. That's what sin does. I mean, consider even as, as Jesus is sharing this parable, think about the tax collectors. We, we, we know the tax collectors, is, they, they didn't just collect taxes. These were Israelites who basically purchased the right to, to take taxes uh, from their local Jews to give back to Rome. And what these, what these Jews, or these tax collectors would have done, not caring who they hurt, they would have overcharged the, their fellow Israelites in order to give money to Rome. And they would have lined their pockets with money, dollar after dollar after dollar after dollar, not caring who they hurt. They were selfish. They were rude. And they were lonely people. You know why? Because people hated them, because they were jerks. They were dishonest. That's what sin does. Crushes relationships. Sin brings us to the point that we don't care about others. We don't care about who we hurt. As long as we get what our carnal flesh desires, we continue in our sin full steam ahead. We don't care. That's the consequences of sin. Sin breaks up marriages. Sin breaks up family. Sin breaks up friends. And sin breaks up churches. And I could go on. The consequences of sin are devastating because sin results in broken relationships. Next, sin results in poor judgment and poor decisions. Poor judgment and and poor decisions. I mean, consider how foolish this young man was. He left his family behind where life was good. He left his family behind and he moved to a foreign land. This this foreign land where he uh, he, he left his home where he had a house and servants, and a field, and food, and life was good. And he goes to a foreign land with no connections, no network, no fellowship, no knowledge of where he's going, no home. He was basically going to be homeless. You know, sure, he had his cash, so he might be able to establish a life there, but he had nobody and nothing, nowhere to go. But the younger brother didn't care, did he? Because this is exactly what sin does. It clouds our judgment to where we make some of the most foolish decisions possible. You ever seen that in your sin? You make just some of the stupidest financial decisions? In your sin, you make, you make some of the dumbest health decisions, addicted to drugs and, and, and alcohol or, or 
whatever. We make some of the, the most foolish career decisions. We make, we make some of the most foolish relationship decisions. We make some of the most foolish church decisions. Why? Because sin is all-encompassing, and it seeks to destroy you and your judgment. Walking in unrepentant sin does not lead to good decisions and, and proper judgment. It doesn't, friend. It seeks to destroy you. Next consequence, sin, sin results in continued unholy living. The text tells us that this young man squandered his property in reckless living. He squandered it. This means that his loss was a result of sinful self-indulgence. He didn't just make a bad investment. He was a fool. He's like a man that, that, that would, would, would just go burn all his money on, on, on strip clubs, alcohol, and lottery tickets, hoping to somehow meet his carnal desires through one of these, through one of these means. He gets all this money, all this cash, and, and, then he, and he just goes and burns it in, in foolish, foolish, foolish ways. Proverbs 29.3 says this, and this is probably what would have, would have been on the, the, the mind of these Pharisees, a man who loves wisdom brings joy to his father, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. Squanders it. This is what sin does. We walk in unrepentant sin, thinking that our small sins, if there are such things, and there aren't to God, but we think this way, that our small sins will be somehow isolated. They're isolated incidents. And that we can... Commit them in secret, and then we will walk away unscathed. That is not how sin works, friends. That is not how sin works. In reality, we know this, that our sin, when unchecked, when we don't repent, when we keep walking in sin, it simply snowballs and grows exponentially. That's what sin does. It results in continued unholy living. And finally, sin leaves us desperate and bankrupt. It was in this land that the son left his father. He took all he had. He goes and he squanders this living. It is in this land where he hits rock bottom. In the land where he was supposed to make a name for himself and experience financial freedom, he suddenly found himself enslaved to foreigners in a foreign country. There's nothing that, that the Lord would do in the Old Testament to bring judgment upon Israel, like taking a foreign nation and bringing Israel into captivity under a foreign nation. It was one of the biggest judgments that God would ever do to Israel. And he did it multiple times. And, and here we see this young man going into a foreign land where he thought he would experience freedom, where he thought he would experience joy, where he thought he would, where he, where he thought he would experience the good life. And what does he find? Captivity. Slavery, basically. And bondage to foreigners in an unfamiliar land. And in his slavery, he's not serving people, he's not serving friends, he's not serving kings, he's not serving rulers, but he is serving pigs. The most, the most unholy animal in the law, pigs. Here he's, he's in the land, didn't turn out the way he wanted, did it, friends? Didn't turn out exactly how he thought it would be. 
And in that moment, as he's serving these unclean animals in slavery, he realizes something, that the pigs were eating better than he did because a famine hits. In the midst of all of his junk, a famine hits. He has nothing, no food. These pigs have food. These these unclean animals have food, but he doesn't have food. He has hit rock bottom. And it could not get any worse. This is what sin does, friends. This is what unrepentant sin does. It does not satisfy. You're hiding your sin today, friend. I'm telling you right now, it does not satisfy. It will not satisfy. In any way, shape, or form, it destroys. It destroys you from the inside out. It doesn't stop until it destroys you and everything in its path. It will destroy you. It will destroy your family. Left unchecked, destroy a church, split a church. It leaves you completely broken. You know, John Owen famously wrote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You're thinking, life is pretty good. You don't know me, Brian. I've been living in unrepentant sin for quite some time. And I like my life. Dear friend, you, you, you might have a nice life right now. You might have money in the bank, a nice girlfriend, a lot of friends, a nice social media presence, good health. Maybe you're athletic. And you might continue that for the rest of your life, but dear friends, you might not experience hitting rock bottom today or even in this life, but I promise you this, friend, you will hit rock bottom of rock bottom for all of eternity unless you trust in Christ today and repent of your sin. Say that with all love and kindness. You see, the, the prodigal son is a picture of the types of people that Jesus hung out with and pursued. These are the types of people that he hung out with. Their lives were broken by sin. Their lives were rock bottom. They were disgusting. They were wretched. And to be honest, the Pharisees were not wrong about them. If the Pharisees were right about anything, they're right about the moral state of the people that Jesus hung out with. They were despicable. They were vile, just like me, and just like you, friend, apart from Christ Jesus. This is who we are. We are individuals with no regard for God. We are God-haters and we are self-lovers, as Doug always likes to say. That is who we are. We are people addicted to our sin experiencing the full weight and consequences of our sin, whether we, whether we know it or not. Apart from Christ, we are spiritually and morally bankrupt. 
addicted to unholy living, addicted to poor judgment and poor decisions. But in this story, this is a picture of all of us before we came to Christ. But there is good news with point three here this morning, friends. There's good news that the joy in repentance is exhilarating. The joy found in repentance is exhilarating. Verse 17, we, we see this, this younger son, and, and, and ultimately it says when he, when he came to himself, when, when he came to his senses, when he was finally awakened to the reality of his situation, that, he, that life didn't turn out the way he wanted, and it, he hit rock bottom, and that, you know what? He was wrong. He was foolish. He came to his senses. And we find this younger son at his, his greatest point, but also his lowest point. He's been beaten down by a life of sin and rebellion, and his pride ate him from the inside. He has two choices. He has two choices at this point, this moment of reckoning. He can continue in his sin. It's choice one. He can continue in his sin. What would that look like? It would look like a refusal to admit that he was foolish. I'm just going to keep doing things the way that, that, that I'm doing them. I'm going to refuse. I'm just going to hope that things eventually get better. None of this is a result of my sin. I'm just going to hope that it gets better. I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to ignore the Father, ignore what I did. I'm just going to ignore it. Or he could make excuses as to why he was in the situation that he was in. I'm going to make a bunch of excuses. You know, well, if it wasn't for the famine, I wouldn't actually be in this place. The problem was actually the famine. You know, man, it's like the, it's like the guy. You know, he, he, he's, he's hitting rock bottom. He, he made a thousand poor financial decisions in his life until he gets to that one point in his life, and it's like something bad happens, no savings, no, no nothing, and he blames the problem. No, the problem was what happened 10 years before. So we often do with our sin. We just make excuses and excuses and excuses and hope that life gets better. He could have lived in bitterness towards his family and blamed them for a situation. Well, you don't know how hard my father was. He was a loser, etc. Or he could have feared the consequences of his sin, which was death if he would have gone home. And refused to be reconciled to his father because he feared his father and how he would have reacted. That's what he could have done. He could have continued in his sin. Or he could have repented of his sin. He could have repented of his sin. And as this young man came to his senses and he came to himself, that is exactly what he did. And what does that repentance look like, friend? First, he remembered the goodness and sufficiency of his father. He remembers how well the slaves were treated at his house. They never went without anything to eat. They were treated fairly. And there's an assumption that if, even if he were to go back, he could go back as a slave and his father would still receive him, that his father was somewhat merciful. He remembers the goodness of his father. And next, he, he confesses his sin. Do you, do you see that there? He, he confesses his sin. He knows that he wronged his father. He knows that he wronged heaven and earth. 
He confesses that what he did was wrong. He provides no excuses for his sin. He doesn't justify his sin. He simply confesses, I was wrong. Next, he acknowledges his standing before his good father. He says, if I go back to my father, here's what I'm going to say, that, that I am unworthy to be called a son. I'm not worthy. In fact, I'm, I'm only worthy to receive stoning. I'm worthy to go be dragged out to the city gates and stoned. And, and I'm going to fall at your feet and pray for mercy that you would receive me back as a slave. That's my only hope. And in light of this, repentance looks like him turning from his current life of sin and debauchery and reckless behavior and sin and idolatry and heading towards his father. Friend, this is a picture of what repentance looks like. It is gazing upon the goodness of God and his mercy and his grace and his loving kindness character and his, and, and his love for us and his, and his love for this world, and in light of seeing his goodness and his grace and his mercy, we confess our sin to him. As violent as it, as it is, as corrupt as we are, we simply confess. No excuses, no justification. Just acknowledge our, 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 our wickedness before him. We, under, we, we acknowledge that we don't deserve his mercy. We don't deserve his grace. We deserve nothing but, but his judgment. That is what we deserve. But even in the moment, we understand that his mercy is greater than that. We understand that. And so therefore, we turn from this life of sin. And we turn to Christ. We turn towards him and desire him and trust him and put our hope in him. No longer desiring this junk of the world. That is what repentance looks like. And as Jesus was hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, the woman at the well, Zacchaeus, among many, these wretched sinners who had lost it all, these social outcasts in Israel, they were coming to Christ, they were, they were coming before Christ, they were seeing him, and they were treasuring him, and they loved him, and they hated their sin, and they turned and followed Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ saved them, and he changed them. It's a picture of repentance, friends. And you know what happens in such a case. Well, well let's just keep reading. In verse 20, the, the young man, he, he arose, and he came to his father. He started taking the journey back home. And in this large piece of property, the father, he looks out in the, into the distance, into this field, and he sees this faint object. But in the moment, he knows the faint object. He sees it. And, and, and you can imagine this, this, this man who'd been broken, that he'd been homeless. He was probably half naked. And he smelled and his bones and his body being in a wither because he had no food. He was at his lowest, most humble point possible. He was at the most wicked state of his entire life. He had disowned his father, disowned his family, squandered the wealth in unrighteous living. And here he comes probably half, half walking and half crawling across his field, way in the distance. And the father at that point 
As he's a long way off, the father starts sprinting. He sprints towards the young man. The father made the effort to go to the young man. And he shows him compassion. And he shows him mercy. He kisses him. He doesn't stay there. And he, and he doesn't say, do you know what you did, young man? Do you know how vile and evil you have been? Oh, you are going to pay for this. Tell me, what did you do to lose the inheritance? You left with bags this big and you've come back empty-handed. You've squandered our whole family fortune, you wretched little son. None of that did he do. He did not scold him. He did not hate him. He did not raise his voice. Dear friends, he embraced his son and he showed him compassion. Do you see that he kissed this dirty face that has been serving pigs? That is a picture of the mercy of our God towards us. We are wretched. We are vile. We are hateful towards God. And if it wasn't for his great grace, and if it wasn't for his pursuit of us, we would still be in our filth. But he has shown us mercy. Finally, the grace of God is greater than our sin. The grace of God is greater than our sin. And the son said to him, you know, the this, this son, he'd been rehearsing this. He'd been rehearsing this, this message that he was going to tell his father. He's going to say, you know, father, I... I, I, I I need your mercy, and I don't deserve to be called a son. Can you allow me back into the home as, as, as a servant? And so he starts on the spiel. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father stops him right there. Hush. He stops the conversation with the son and begins a conversation with his servants. And that moment he says this. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate for my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found they began to celebrate this is a picture of grace it's a picture of grace First of all, we saw a picture of mercy and the, the father, he comes and he feels compassion and he embraces him and he kisses him. He didn't stone him. He did not give him what he deserved. What is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. I'm thankful that God doesn't just give us mercy, but he gives us grace. Because in grace, it's not that we just don't get what we deserve is receiving all of the things that we don't deserve. And this is what Christ does for us, friends. It's not simply that we are no longer going to face the punishment of our sins. Yes, we are declared righteous. But if you read Ephesians 1, 
Do you realize, do you realize this, that, 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 that God, that if we are in Christ Jesus and we have received his mercy, we've repented of our sins, we've trusted in him alone for salvation, that we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, that we are sons of God. We are adopted. We are adopted. We are adopted, friend. Now, I've taken you've, you've had the opportunity to meet Wilder. Recently, the, the Conti family adopted Wilder into their family. And Wilder doesn't just have the rights of a son in their family. He's not just kind of like a son in their family. Wilder is Stephen and Jennifer's son, his real son. Every bit as much as every child in that family. Do we understand this picture of adoption? This is what happens to us. We're not just we're not just like Christ's like dirty little servants and, 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 and second-class citizens in the kingdom. We are adopted sons and daughters of Christ Jesus, of, of God the Father. We are his sons. But, but we, 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 are, we are now a part of his kingdom. Revelation tells us that, that he has made us a, a kingdom of priests to reign. And not only that, he has put his spirit within us. That, that, that God dwells in us and changes us, giving us affections for God. He changes and he sanctifies us. He makes us like Jesus. He's given us a hope. He's given us a future. And one day, one day, he will return we have no reason to fear. We have no reason to, to be scared, to be sad. That'll be the greatest day in history or for all of eternity future. When Christ comes for us, his bride, and we will celebrate and celebrate and celebrate Christ for all of eternity. Oh, what joy it is to be found in Jesus, friends. Does that, does that provide joy in your heart this morning? I pray that it does. I pray that it does because I'm telling you, friends, as I've been preparing this message this week, that is exactly what my cold heart needed to hear. I did not need crazy, deep theology. I needed just the reality of the wonderful grace of God. May we be edified and blessed by the word of God this morning.